Well, good morning, City Church. My name is Micah Stockdale, and I am the pastor of discipleship here at City Church. I'm excited to bring the Word of God to you this morning. So I would like to start with a little bit of an interactive experiment. There you are. Okay, um, now we can do this. And uh, there was a gentleman in the 50s. His name was Mercia um, Eladi, and he was a historian. He, he was also a professor who taught at the University of Chicago, and he wrote a book um, called The Sacred and the Profane. So what he did was he looked through all of history and he detailed how every nation up until really the nation that we live in in the West in the 21st century had two categories that they put everything into. And he called those categories the sacred and the profane. The sacred, another word you can use, is holy. The profane is just something that is common. So the sacred really were derived from the divine, those who were part of the divinity. Um, and then the profane was just everything that was earthly. And he talked about, um, what was the word? He had a word, hierophany. Now, in the Christian church, we're familiar with theophany. That's where God invades, God comes, and then we experience him in history. A hierophany is um, his definition of eruption or invasion of the sacred in a profane space. So the experiment I want to do with you is I'm going to hold up um, two objects and then we're going to look at something together. Your job is to tell me which of those two categories it falls into, the sacred or the profane. Do you think you can do that? All right, let's go. All right, here's object number one. Would you say that this is the sacred or the profane? It's a Bible if you can't see it. What do you think? Okay. And then this is object number two. Where would you put this? All jokes aside, this is Harry Potter, the Deathly Hallows. What would you put that category in? Sacred or profane? Don't be shy. Don't be bashful. Profane. Profane just means common, um, just to remind you. So we've been in a series over the past four weeks. This is week number five, looking at holy moments in the last week of Jesus' life. And what we've seen is uh, any moment, no matter how common, is a prime moment for Jesus to make it into a holy moment. And so we've seen a lot of common moments be changed and transformed into holy moments. So the one today that we're going to look at doesn't feel like a holy moment. It actually feels very much like a profane moment. Um, but we're going to see that even in this profane moment um, that Jesus is ready to bring redemption, forgiveness, and freedom to us all. Do you need that this morning? Anyone? Yeah, I do. I really do. And um, the Lord kind of downloaded this to my spirit, so I just wrote it um, before I came up. If I had to say it in a sentence, it's real simple this morning. If you're someone who takes notes, you can write this down. Um, our failures are grace triggers. Our failures are grace triggers. So if you don't get anything else from this talk today, um, I'd love for you to uh, hold on to that. So if you have your scripture, turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be starting in verse 53. While you're turning there, I just want to give a little bit of background to where, we're, where we find ourselves in our story today. Jesus just had the Passover dinner with his disciples, 
and then he went to pray. It was here that we saw last week, Pastor Mike showed us um, what it was like for Jesus to pray, a prayer that actually led to him bleeding. Prayers that make you bleed was last week. So he prayed for the cup of God's wrath to pass from him. And despite having to go through this pain, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. That's what he said to God. And shortly after that, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, came up to Jesus, kissed his cheek, and with that, he betrayed Jesus, which led to his arrest. So we're at the point in the story where Jesus has now just been arrested. He's about to go before the Jewish religious leaders with the intent of them finding something wrong to lead to his execution. The problem, well, we'll get in that, into that in a moment. Verse 53 of Mark 14 says this, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So Pastor Mike mentioned the way that Rome was set up was it was the governing body of the world at the time. It was an empire. So anything that had to do with governance, anything that had to do with Rome and what Rome wanted to do, that was their jurisdiction. But all the people they conquered had their own cultural laws and their own cultural ways of living. Rome didn't get involved in that. They said, you do you, and when anything comes to the level of governing and something that Rome needs to step into, then we will, we will enter into that and deal with it appropriately. So the high priests and the chief priests have this problem. They want Jesus dead because he's like their number one enemy of the state. But they can't kill him. So they have to not only find a way to condemn him for the Jews, they have to also do it for the Romans, because the Romans had the keys to execution. And so that's where we find ourselves today. We're about to see that the plan that the Jewish leaders were conspiring together in secret was to bring Jesus to a place of death. They were going to use Jesus' words and twist them so that they could bring about his execution. So let's see how this unfolds. Verse 54, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Just to remind you, we learned a couple weeks ago that Peter promised. I mean, this, this dude was in passion, like, I am not going to deny you. Jesus said, actually, wrong. You're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, I would die for you. I will never no, never deny you. And Jesus laid out for him what exactly was going to happen. I think it's interesting that when we think we have to lay down our life for Jesus, we have to be reminded that it was actually Jesus who first laid down his life for us. See, we can lay down our lives because Jesus laid down his life first. His action begets ours and we have to remember where it starts it doesn't start with us saying in passion that we're going to do something for jesus it starts first with jesus doing that very thing for us so we can lay down our lives for him but this is so important you will never be able to pick up something that you have not first laid down you will never be able to pick up something that you have not first laid down. So God wants 
God wants you to have success. He wants your success. If you're thinking about the dreams and the aspirations you have, God is about your success, the fulfillment of your dreams. He wants you to have all the things, but he doesn't want those things to have you. That's what, exactly what Tony just said. Money is so, so vital in our lives. Do we own money or does money possess us? Well, it's the same with any other thing in life, whether profane or sacred, right? Does it own us or do we own this thing? God wants your success. He wants your dreams. He wants you to succeed and excel, but not at the expense of you, not in you losing yourself. When you lay down your desires, your hopes, and your life, you are then and only then ready to receive what God has for you. It's then that you're ready to pick it up again, but it starts with you laying it down. One of the Dynamic City Kids teachers is Lauren. Um, some might call her a rock star. Um, I've heard that term. We were talking last week. Uh, Brody actually called her a rock star, I think. Uh, we were talking last week about every, how every day as a follower of Jesus is a day where we need to wake up and count the cost of following Jesus. Jesus said, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. That's in Matthew chapter 10. Let's continue reading. Verse 55 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows, or the guards continued to beat him. I want, to, I want us to get a picture of what this looks like here. Here's a man who's completely innocent, has never done one wrong thing in his life, no sin. He's never offended someone uh, sinfully. He's simply proclaiming the truth of the kingdom of God. And because he proclaimed the truth, the religious leaders get upset and want to stop him. Why? Well, because the amount of influence that Jesus had. That was the thing that they had. That was their dream, that they would be able to influence everyone 
above and beyond anyone else that was living. Jesus had the influence that they sought. The, the narrative of Jesus, what he came to bring, didn't line up or mirror the one that they were teaching the people and that they, in fact, believed themselves. And it was disrupting their way of life. It was calling them to something deeper. It was calling them to a heart posture, not just this head filled with rules and ways of living. Jesus was disrupting their life. So this leads me to the first truth I want to consider with you this morning, and that is Jesus wants to disrupt our way of life. As I say this, it may sound like a bad thing, but give me a, a moment to show you how it's not. See, when Jesus wants to disrupt your way of life, it's always for his glory and for your good. Now, raise your hand if you've ever felt the Lord moving in you to do something and you've resisted it because you were convinced in your own person that this isn't good for me. Raise your hand if that's ever happened. Um, I was a part of the prayer walk yesterday. I'm off notes right now. Um, so if I go past 30 seconds, holler. Um, I was on the prayer walk yesterday, and Raina and I were walking around. And um, there's this one gentleman. It was freezing, guys. I was, like, so cold. I wimped out at the end. I think Raina would have kept going. Like, I'm too cold. Um, with this one guy on the other side of the street, and we're, we're praying and, and trying to sense where the Lord wants us to go. And I felt this so, so, so clear in my spirit. Hey, go talk to him. And I, uh, I just shut down. I was like, no way. No way. I'm not doing it. Um, why? Like, I, I was scared of what Raina would think. Um, I'm like, it's so silly, right? But that, that's just me being vulnerable and letting you know this happens to me. Like, happened yesterday, even this morning. I won't share that one with you, though. My 30 seconds is up. Sometimes God calls us to do something, but here's what you have to walk in. Here's the truth that, that has to guide you. It's for my good and his glory. Every time, God will never call you to do something that's not for your good. It might not feel good, and you know sometimes he calls us to do things that don't feel good, but it is always good because he's good and he does good. That's what Psalm 119 says. He wants to disrupt the way that you live your life so that you can be brought to a place that is aligned with who you are. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but we said this a few weeks ago. Our identity as followers of Jesus Christ is not in what we do, our past sins, so what we did, or the identity that people put on us. Our identity is in Christ. We're covered in Christ. We're found in Christ. It says we're hid in him, the scriptures say, meaning that when we say yes to Jesus, we allow him to be the Lord of our lives. We're allowing ourselves to be transformed into a new identity. That's why saying yes matters so much. If you say yes, God can do the work. If you say no, he won't. He respects your yes and he respects your no. So giving him a yes is giving him the ability to completely change who you are. That yes is so vital. That's why John chapter 3 is so incredibly important. Jesus said that we must be born again. Saying yes to Jesus is what gives us a new identity. We're born into this world that's broken and filled with sin 
but Jesus desires for us to be born again as a new creation with a new identity. This is what I mean by Jesus disrupting your life. He wants to take what is normal in your life, what is normal in my life, and he wants to turn it around. He wants to take what is profane or common and make it sacred or holy. He wants to take our habits and make them holy. He wants to take our past and redeem them. But in order for this to happen, we have to allow him to disrupt our past sins, our wicked thoughts, our thought patterns, and allow him to redirect our lives and our heart to who God has recreated us to be. I met one of my heroes a couple years ago, um, and, and when I met this pastor, one of the things I remember him saying was, thank you for your yes. Because he knew the power that was held in yes. If you just say yes, then God can do anything. Nothing's impossible for him. And so he thanked me for my yes. The second truth I want to discuss is uh, that we can't pick and choose our king. We can't pick and choose our king. What the Pharisees were doing is picking and choosing who the Messiah would be. They wanted and expected a Messiah that was based on their own desires. They had been slaves to many nations in the past. Just read Judges, read Exodus. Um, that was the first nation that they were enslaved to, Egypt. And they were currently enslaved to another nation, Rome, and wanted the Messiah to be a conquering king who would bring destruction to all the other nations. See, they wouldn't say yes. They wouldn't accept Jesus because he was not what they had in mind. He didn't fit their expectations. But I want to talk about the Bible for just a moment. If you're new to church, especially city church, it's important to know that the Bible is what we build our lives on top of and is what we live under. The Bible guides us. We believe that it is the written words of God to give us inspiration and instruction to live a holy lifestyle and to draw us closer to the character and nature of God. That same hero that I mentioned, um, the first time I ever heard him preach, held up a Bible and said, I love the word of God. And I would say the same thing, and the leaders of City Church would say the same thing. We love God's word because it not only guides us, but it, it inspires us to live the lifestyle that Christ calls us to. Because we believe this, we aspire to be willing to submit and trust the entirety of the word of God. We don't get to pick and choose who God is. We don't get to take things out of the word of God and replace it with our emotions, our feelings, or our thoughts. See, when we do this, we are becoming idolaters and saying that we know better than God. When we pick and choose the words, the verses, the chapters that we want to apply to our life, we're saying, I know better than God knows. He gave us 66 books of the Bible written by 40 people so that we would know who he is and what he wants us to do. All of it matters for our life. Not all of it is easy to interpret because um, God's so much bigger than us, but it is all valuable and helpful for us to live the life that God calls us to. Can I get an amen? You guys are getting quiet on me. So this is the problem that we're facing right now 
as an American church. We're trying to pick and choose what is right and holy. We're replacing scripture with culture, but that's not how it works. God's word has proven to be true across all of history. Every nation, every epoch of time, every people group, God's word applies to, and it doesn't change according to how the culture is able or unable to receive it. It all matters, and we align ourselves with the Bible. We don't align the Bible with culture. It's wrong for us to change scripture when it doesn't fit our narrative. When we're like, ah, it's not politically correct. Or it doesn't line up with the life I've chosen to live. That, that is idolizing your preference, your picture of who you want God to be over who God declares himself to be. And we got to do better. We have to. Because when we come into alignment with who God is, it's then that his blessings flow. It's then that we are transformed into his image. Not when we're trying to make him into our image. See, Jesus is king, and when we see him as king, we have to understand that his kingdom and his ways may be different from the culture of this world. We have to be willing to submit to the truth of the word of God. So let's not be like the Pharisees who rejected the Messiah king because he was a suffering lamb. He wasn't the lion king that they experienced, that they expected. Let's not identify with Pharisees who said, you don't look like what I wanted or sound like what I feel is right. Therefore, I don't have a place for you. Instead, let's be people who are ready and willing to accept God's word and to treasure it in our heart like the mother Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, pondered things in her heart that didn't make sense to her, that were confusing at times. She sat on them. She thought about them. She prayed and processed what it could mean for her and how she can align herself to come under the word. Being a Jesus follower isn't first about what we want. It's about what Jesus wants, what he says, what he commands, and who he is. That's what being a Jesus follower is. It's not about what I say. It's about what he says. The third truth we're going to look at is because we don't recognize the kingship of Christ, we often deny Jesus. See, you thought it was just Peter the three times. Every time, though, that we choose to do what we want and we know that it's not what, what God wants, whether in action, right, that's the fruit of the tree. If you go back, you go to thoughts, that's like the trunk of the tree, and then the roots are the desires that you have. When you act out in any of those places, words, thoughts, actions, desires, you are doing the same thing that Peter did. You're denying Jesus. And so we do the same thing when we don't recognize that Christ is king. We may have a lot of passion for the Lord like Peter, but when the hardest moments of our life happen, if we do not submit to the lordship of Christ, we'll end up denying him. 
Verse 66 says, And then Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked up at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately, somebody say immediately. Immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So this is a very heavy text right now. We've been building almost to this moment in a lot of ways. A few hours before this, Jesus said to Peter that he would deny him. And Peter said, I won't deny you. Jesus said, here's how you're going to do it, how many times, and what's going to happen to make sure you know that what I said is true. So I don't know if Peter was afraid or what it was, but it was a teenage girl who questioned who he followed that led to him denying Jesus three times. Teenage girls can be scary. All right, so we can't be too hard on Peter. Peter would have been standing in the middle of a courtyard that archaeology has discovered recently. Um, and Pastor Mike actually got to go and be there last year um, and stand in the very place where Peter was, where he denied Jesus. Jesus would have been in the doorway just a few feet away when this happened. See, Peter was physically close to Jesus, right? You couldn't get much closer to Jesus than Peter was in this moment or in relationship. Yet fear and sin, worry, led, to, led him to a place of denying his Savior. See, in the midst of the furnace... Peter's proximity didn't translate into loyalty. What is your furnace? We all have our furnaces. We all get to a place where it's hot and we have to make a decision. Does our proximity to Jesus equate our loyalty or does it reveal something else, something that is misaligned? For our lives, we all have the opportunity to draw near to Jesus. We all have opportunities every day to draw closer to him. Yet if we do not abide in Christ, staying with him, it doesn't matter how close we are. We are one decision away from denying Jesus in our life. We're one decision away from turning our back on him. I give it up for Peter. None of the other disciples were there. Did you catch that? He was there. At least he showed up on time. He was in the right place. His heart needed a little bit of work done to it. But it wasn't enough to just be there, right? It's not enough to just show up. We have to bring our heart. We have to allow the Lord to interrupt what we think is good and replace it with what he says is good. So there's good news for you. This is my final, fourth and final truth that we're going to consider. There is grace. There is grace. Somebody say amen for that. Where are you, Jerry? I need you. There's grace for me. 
Peter denied Jesus, and this was the last time Peter ended up seeing him face to face before Jesus, his best friend, was put to death. I'm sure that he felt the pain, condemnation, and guilt for doing exactly what he told Jesus he wouldn't do. I'm sure that you've been there as well. I know I have. Jesus, I will never do this again. I will never back down from loving you until I do. Friends, there is grace. We will deny Jesus again in our lives, either through word or deed. We'll find ourselves to be incredibly close to Jesus, and something so small will cause us to trip up in our relationship with him and fall down. This is where the good news of the gospel comes into play. We're invited into the place of repentance and forgiveness. We're invited to get back up and keep going. We're invited to not live under condemnation and the spirit of shame, but to keep going. Proverbs 24, 16 says the righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up again and he keeps going. After his death and burial, resurrection, Jesus returned to Galilee, and Peter returned to what he knew beforehand, which was being a fisherman. And this is where Jesus shows up on the scene with Peter and brings him to a place of repentance and forgiveness. So if you have your scriptures in hand, turn to John chapter 21. If you don't, we'll have it on the screen. Peter goes back to fishing, and then Jesus shows up. He catches a large number of fish, just like he did the first time that Jesus met him. See, Peter denied Jesus three times, but that didn't keep Jesus from doubling down on his relationship with Peter. Jesus went back to the place he originally called him and said, I want you still. I want you now. I'm not done with you yet. It's interesting that uh, the time Peter was enjoying, this time he was enjoying breakfast with Jesus by a charcoal fire. There are only two times where that word for charcoal fire is used in the New Testament. The first time was in the courtyard of the high priest when Peter denied Jesus, and the second was right here in this passage when Jesus showed up for breakfast. I think for us this is a way of showing us that sometimes Jesus has to recreate an event in our life to allow us to be healed. Sometimes, even in our hearts and minds, we need to go back to the moment when we denied Jesus and find a healing there. Find forgiveness there. He always gives it. So Jesus is about to serve IHOF to Peter. Um, that's International House of Fish, if you didn't catch that. And he says this, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? He, Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved like, like I would be, like you would be, because he said to him three times, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Notice three times Peter denied him. And three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? The number three in the Hebrew conveys the idea of divine wholeness, completion, perfection, 
and new life. So when a Hebrew is reading this very word that we're reading, they're thinking, oh, there's something behind the amount of times that Jesus did this. Yes, it's to replace the three denials, but it's also to bring in a new life, a completeness that Peter is missing, a perfection that he needs. He was reaching into the pain of Peter's sin and redeeming him, making him whole and then commissioning him to the call that Jesus placed on him. The forerunner, Jesus, who traveled into the belly of death, brought life back and now offers it to anyone who's caught in a death trap. It's not just Peter who needs the forgiveness of the Lord. It's not just Peter who needs to be restored, who needs new life. It's each of us. Because if each of us deny him, then each of us needs to be restored. And Jesus went into the grave, went into death, and brought life back for you and for me. I want to invite the prayer team up and as we close. What we just experienced in John 21 is exactly what Jesus wants to do in your life. He wants to reach into the sin area of our lives, the areas where we deny his lordship, and he wants to bring healing, restoration, wholeness, so that he can then commission us to do his work. God is interesting interested in changing this world. But get this, he's only interested in doing it through you. He wants you to say yes so that he can then go and bless all the nations through his son. That's what he wants. Can he do it without you? Yes. Will he? I'm not sure. You have an opportunity to say yes and like Mordecai, this just came into my spirit, said to Esther, God's going to save his people. And if you choose not to say yes to this opportunity, you're going to die. But he's still going to save through some other way. And that's what God's committed to. He's going to save. He's going to do his thing. But guess what? You have an opportunity to be a part of the work that he's doing. So my question to you in closing is, will you allow God to step in and make what is now profane into something sacred? Will you allow God to take what is common and transform it into something that is holy? And it can start in this moment. If the Lord's been tugging at your spirit, if there's something that you want to just give to the Lord that's holding you back, that's keeping you from int intimacy with him, Now's the time. It starts right now. And God can meet you in this place, and he can do the same thing for you that he did for Peter 2,000 years ago. Will you say yes to him? Will you step into this holy moment? I welcome you to come up um, if, if that's the place where you're at. God, and I bless you um, in the name of Jesus. Uh, we sing your praises. We... Uh, lay hold of the grace that you have um, declared is, is rightfully ours. And so we give you back the only thing that we have. 
We give you back our south. Whatever you want to do, we're saying you can do. And we love you. Help us. Help us to release those things that are keeping us from greater intimacy and friendship with your son. Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do. Will you transform our hearts today so that we can be a part of revival in this city? God, let it start with us. In Jesus' name, amen.